Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's summer sale time and we're giving podcast listeners an amazing 50% off an annual subscription to New Scientist. Yeah, this is a really incredible deal. You can get unlimited access to all our articles on newscientist.com for under £50 in the UK or under $50 in the US. Go to newscientist.com slash pod50 to get this absolute bargain. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarchet. Welcome to the show. This week, we're joined by reporters Claire Wilson and Michael LePage in London and Leah Crane in Chicago. Welcome all. Hello. Thanks, Penny. Hello. Coming up on the show this week, we're hearing from an extraordinary scientist who claims to have evidence that we live in a multiverse. And we're going to pick over the news from last week that DeepMind has solved one of biology's biggest problems. We've also got an interview with superstar writer Neil Gaiman about dreams and the new Netflix show based on his comic Sandman. And we're going to hear about the latest from the James Webb Space Telescope. But we're going to start with a story uh, about making zombies. Well, that, that's what you said it was about, didn't you, Michael? Uh, I, I confess that's how I summarised it. Might not <laughs> was be quite it, accurate. Was that an hmm. exaggeration, perhaps? Yes, it is a bit of an exaggeration. But I can see where you got the idea from, Michael, because it, it does involve trying to bring, bring people back from the dead in a strange kind of way. But that would be the the most radical application of this new medical technology. So let me first tell you about what the the researchers really are trying to do. And that is they're trying to rescue and preserve cells and tissues and organs that are suffering from lack of blood supply or lack of oxygen. So the research team from Yale University have done this by uh, creating an artificial blood substitute. And this contains haemoglobin, the protein normally found inside our red blood cells. So it contains haemoglobin in a very pure form, as well as a cocktail of electrolytes and nutrients and medical drugs that aim to stop the normal processes of cell death that happen when cells are deprived of oxygen. I just have to jump in. I think it's more like Frankenstein than zombies, <laughs> just to be refine the genre we're talking about here. Uh, well, let, I'll bring you back down to reality because what, what they so far they have only tested this in, on pigs, not people. So it's obviously really early Frank stage work. So they anaesthetized the pigs so that they they didn't suffer, and then they stopped their hearts as if they'd had a heart attack, and they let them lie on the operating table for one hour, effectively dead. And then they connected them to uh, something similar to, to what's uh, sometimes called a heart-lung machine. And that pumped this special fluid into their bodies for six hours. And then afterwards, they stopped the experiment and they examined the bodies. And they found that the cells of their major organs showed remarkable recovery of function by, by several different measures. If you compared them with animals that had just received an ordinary blood through an ordinary heart-lung machine. Wow. So what did this 
cocktail of special drugs did what did it bring them back to life mm, no no not at all they they did not restart the animal's hearts and they certainly didn't see any brain waves in their brains that would have been impossible given the the circumstances they were looking at the organs using just isolated cells for instance looking at the cell's ability to take up glucose and metabolize it so that's a far cry from showing that any whole organs can function normally. Mm. But nevertheless, I spoke to several other scientists who work in this area, but they are independent of this research team. And they say that this does make us somewhat rethink the ability of cells to survive a lack of blood supply. So we used to think that it was an irreversible process that happens after death. These new results, they, they suggest that there is a longer window of rescuing biological functions than we previously thought. This is so interesting and it, it raises so many questions. But one thing it immediately makes me think of, Claire, is do you remember like, um, I guess it was back in 2018, there was suddenly a bit of a buzz about artificial blood and some quite bold statements that within a few years, we wouldn't need to rely so much on donors for donated blood because we're going to m make our own blood. And I think every year I ask you, is this going to be the year <laughs> that we have artificial blood? This is actually sort of better than that, isn't it? In this experiment, it performed better than the blood. So what is the, the aim here? What do they want to use this for? They say that the, the, the first most immediate aim is to try to save more organs that um, potentially could be used for transplant. So that could be the most immediate application of boosting our number of organs available. The second interesting use that isn't completely far-fetched at all uh, would be to help people who are, who are still alive, who say they've had a heart attack or a stroke that cuts off or reduces blood supply to the heart or the brain, respectively. So it looks like this, this special fluid is, as you say, a bit better than ordinary blood. And then there's a third potential use, which is where things start to get really, really speculative. And this is what Michael was alluding to, I think. So what if we could help someone who has, for instance, drowned there wasn't anything physically wrong with that person before they fell in the water, but they're now dead because um, you know, their lungs filled with water and that made their heart stop. They would currently be classed as dead if, if their heart had been stopped for one hour, say. But suppose we could then just transfuse this fluid into them, um, start pumping it into them and return all their organs to functioning normally. So perhaps they could be saved. I mean, there's a, there's a, that word perhaps is doing a lot of work there, but yeah, if... They could get that to work. Does that mean that that person has been brought back from the dead? Or does it perhaps mean that we have to redefine death? I do think that um, we do. Like We know that it's a much broader thing than we thought even quite recently, perhaps. People can be revived yeah. and this might, might make it even broader still. That's a big thing, isn't it? Redefining death. Yeah. I mean, it's always happened really because of new medical interventions, because we used to just think, uh, you know, many, many years ago, we used to just think somebody had died when they visibly stopped breathing. Yeah. And then we had ventilators, which allowed them to breathe artificially. And then, you know, they developed things like heart-lung machines. So all the way, the more you use medicine to try and save people, the more it puts us into a bit of a quandary. Next up, it's Neil Gaiman. 
Yes. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, what a legend. Uh, Neil Gaiman is a British writer. He achieved huge success with novels, children's books, film, theatre. Um, but it all kind of started for him with his co- Sandman comics in the 90s. They were a massive smash hit. And now they've finally been turned into a Netflix series, which launches this week. Neil, thanks for coming on the show. We're really big fans of yours at New Scientist. And although your work is more on the fringes of reality than science, I think you are influenced by science, aren't you? I definitely am. I mean, I've been a mad New Scientist reader now for, well, actually since I was a kid at school, but I've been a subscriber for about 30 years. So I have teetering stacks of ancient New Scientists (laughs) anywhere that you could possibly want them, mostly in the toilets. And I'm always continually inspired by by the odder bits, by the little bits out on the fringes of New mm. Scientist, by those fabulous articles that you run with titles like Is the Entire Universe an Illusion or something? Yeah. And you go, oh, I'm, I wonder if it is or not. I'll find out. I'll read this. Yeah. And you come away from it going, I am no more educated than I was at the beginning, but I feel somehow wiser. Uh, that's that. We'll take that. Okay, let's talk about Sandman because that is a story that it's steeped in, you know, the mystery of sleep and dreams. And that is something that we cover in New Scientist. I mean, I, I remember interviewing a woman once who had what's called epic dreaming, which is you basically dream relentlessly all night long and wake up exhausted. And, and that like sounds like something you could have written. basically. Oh, I, I, but, I think it is something that I've written yeah. several times. I mean, I I was fascinated when I started writing Sandman, when I knew that I was going to be writing Sandman, I picked up lots of fancy books with titles like The Dreaming Brain and read everything I could about sleep and dreams and came to the eventual conclusion that we don't really know anything, mostly because I would keep running into pronouncements by eminent scientists on sleep where they would explain that everybody actually dreams in black and white, but we only imagine the colors on waking or, or there are no plots or are merely images and we impose structure on waking or there are no sounds or there are no smells and listing all the things that there cannot be in dreams. And I'm going, but I've dreamed those things. And I'm, I'm perfectly happy with the current theories, like basically dreaming is the equivalent of the brain's defrag process and it's Mm -hmm. just going through and deciding what it's going to store and what it's going to keep and meanwhile things are clicking but i'm also incredibly aware that for most of humanity's existence what would have happened in their dreams would have been as important to them as what happened in their daily lives even though they're hard to remember sometimes i mean there's one theory i like is um that it's that dreams function as a kind of overnight therapy to process your emotions. And and that might explain why sometimes dreams are quite unpleasant and and dangerous even. I think I I love that as a theory too. And I also think that dreams are very often your brain's way of telling you things that you haven't consciously realized, that you haven't quite looked at. Mm. There's stuff that you know and you have the information, but for whatever reason you haven't looked over there. Sometimes it's just the way the brain's way of saying, look over there, and this is important. Can you tell us a bit about the the Sandman character, the Morpheus, the dreams, for people who don't know about it? Of course. 
the the idea behind Sandman is that there is a place, not a physical place, but a place that you go when you dream. It's called the dreaming. And the king of dreams, the most important person, the person around whom all of this coalesces, is Dream of the Endless, also known as Morpheus, known as many things, barely ever known as Sandman, but that, that was the name that, of the comic as much as it was a name that is occasionally applied to him, the Sandman. But he is the ruler of the place you go where you sleep. And the idea is that in 1916, during the outbreak of encephalitis lethargica, the first wave of sleepy sickness, that was actually caused by his capture. He was captured and imprisoned then. In the original comic, he escaped in 1988. And in the TV series we've done, he escapes in 2022. He escapes now. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that the dreaming has been wrecked and nightmares have escaped into our world. What about, I mean, we know that people vary a lot in how they remember their dreams and, and how influenced they are by them. I, I wondered about your how dreams influence you, because it, it certainly feels like they do. I think they do. I, I long ago realised that I was never going to... I didn't have the kind of head where dream logic for me was anything like story logic and stories do one thing dreams do another but i also realized that dreams are an amazing source of imagery so for me that that's mostly what i've used dreams for um as a writer i get very excited when i've dreamed something even i you know even nightmares i'll wake up from a nightmare thrilled because I can use, oh my gosh, that little baby, and it was dead, and it had an autopsy scar, and then it crawled onto the other baby and started eating it. That's awful, and I can use that. That's brilliant. Um, yes. It reminds me of um, a friend of mine who who does lucid dreaming, who's able to actually get herself into a lucid dreaming state, and she uses it to practice her French in, because in her dream, she's not embarrassed about making mistakes or speaking, you know, her rubbish French in front of people. And then I, I spoke to someone who practices snowboarding moves in a mm. lucid dream. And then the, when they go into reality, they're, they're better at that. So I, I, I don't know, have you ever um, had the, the joy of lucid dreaming? No, but what I've done is when I get stuck on a plot point, when I'm writing whether it's a comic or a novel or a script, when I'm stuck, I will lie in bed, just turning it over and over and over in my head. Somewhere in there, I will fall asleep. And normally when I wake up the next morning, I know exactly how to solve it. And somewhere in there, in dreams, it's like everything kept working and I ran through a thousand different plot iterations and hit the thousand and first which actually solves the problem. And I, I think a lot of it is our way of communicating with ourselves. You know, it's a busy, mad world, and we don't always stop and listen to what we think. That was Neil Gaiman, and I'm really now even more looking forward to Sandman. And uh, just to remind you, it's out on Netflix this week. And now some messages from our sponsors. 
People age at different speeds and the date on your birth certificate may not represent your inner biological age at all. If you're looking for ways to extend your health span and slow down the aging process, the keys to health and longevity may run in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalised plan to improve your metabolism, reduce stress, improve sleep and optimise your health for the long haul. Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. For a limited time, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash new scientist. That's insidetracker.com forward slash new scientist. Now, we've been telling you about this new podcast, How We're Wired, for the last few weeks. And if you've not had a listen yet, you absolutely should. It's all about neuroscience and how our brains work. And even though it's a complex subject, it's super easy to follow. Dr. Anna Machin meets all sorts of expert and non-expert guests to bring you a colourful look at topics from brain building to how we hear. Yeah, did you know babies can hear way more sounds than we can as adults? This is a fact I love from the Focus episode about learning a language. In Swahili, there are two different ways of saying tea, which as English speakers, we'd really struggle to hear. But while babies are first learning language, their brains are wired to take everything in, and it's only later on that we lose this ability. Yeah, it's a really well-crafted and well-produced show, and it constantly takes you out of the studio to meet people like soon-to-be mother Kristen in the brain-building episode, and we join her in the middle of her ultrasound visit uh, so we can find out about fetal brain structures. How We're Wired is the new podcast from the Bertarelli Foundation and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Do check it out. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Now, the big news, huge news last week was that the artificial intelligence firm DeepMind has predicted the structure of nearly all proteins known to science and made those structures freely available. Michael, stuff like this is uh, surely just a revolution and a game changer for biology. Um, am I right to think that? Is it really that big of a deal? Oh, it's it's a huge deal. I mean, it's up there with the discovery of the structure of DNA and the human genome project. <laughs> it's, it's one of those moments when biology just takes a huge step forward. Wow. Everyone's trying now to say how big a deal it is. <laughs> as, as, as big as the, the discovery of DNA. That, that is massive. You better take us through what it is that DeepMind's done, because I don't think it got the attention it deserves for a, a, that big a deal. No, it's, it's, a, it's a little hard to, to get hold of. Uh, so proteins are these molecular machines that do all the hard work in cells, and they're made of these chains of amino acids. And the sequence of amino acids in those chains is laid down in our DNA, in our genes. So 
thanks to genome sequencing, we've now been able to sequence all this DNA and we know the amino acid sequences of around 200 million proteins that's in humans and all sorts of other organisms, viruses, bacteria, and so on. So the, the question is, what do those proteins do? What are they like? Those chains fold into really complex shapes. And before AlphaFold, we'd only managed to work out the shapes of a tiny minority of proteins. That's because it's really tricky to work out and it can take several years just for one protein. Yeah, and, and you know, you hear of people spending whole PhDs, really long periods of research time, just, just trying to get a glimpse at what their protein might look like. But AlphaFold can predict a protein structure in, in just minutes or hours. Yeah, it's amazing. And basically, they trained AlphaFold using the known protein structures and then got it to predict all the unknown ones. And so DeepMind first got the system working really well about a year and a half ago. And then they just went on and did every single protein we know of. That's nearly 200 million. And they've released it all. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. Um, so look, what, why is it so important to know that, you know, not just the sequence of proteins, but the structure, how they fold up? Okay, so imagine your car was a living organism and it had a gene for a brake protein. So if we were trying to work out what it did, so geneticists could sequence uh, the, the gene and then they could try and work out what the protein does by disabling the gene. And they'll go, hey, if you take, take this protein away, your car doesn't stop. But they wouldn't know actually how the protein stops a car. And, and if it went wrong, they wouldn't know how to fix the brakes. You wouldn't be able to do any of those things. You just have this vague idea of what it does. So once you've got the, the protein structure, you can actually work out how that machine actually works. And that just makes what's possible in terms of interacting with it. it just takes it to a whole different level. Okay. Um, I, I like your living car, but can we have a... <laughs> I do like that, but can we have a, another example that's actually real? Yeah, no, there's a, very, there's a great example. So uh, with, with most vaccines, biology just, just stick in the whole protein. They don't need to know the, the structure. They just include entire proteins and our immune systems do all the hard work. But with some diseases such as malaria, that's not enough. We're not getting vaccines that work really well. And what biologists are trying to do is to get the immune system to target a very specific part of just one protein. And to do that, you need to know what the protein structure is so you know exactly what bit of it to put in the vaccine and how the immune system will react to that. And there's a team at Oxford University that has been trying to do this but struggling because they could not work out the structure of one key malarial protein. And so basically, once AlphaFold became available, they worked it out pretty quickly and that's hopefully going to lead to better treatments and vaccines for malaria, which is really desperately mm. needed. So there's, there's one child dying a minute, every minute from malaria still. So I have to say, when I, I heard about this story, I wondered what it meant for x-ray crystallographers, because x-ray crystallography, it's extremely hard, but it, it's pretty much the best way we had until now to work out protein structure. Are they out of a job? How, how are they and other scientists reacting to the announcement? No, it, it's... Uh, so this... this this is a huge step forward, but it's not the problem solved and done and dusted. So AlphaFold is making these predictions, but they're not always perfect. And there's some parts of protein, there's some particular protein structures that it really struggles with and doesn't do very well on yet. And for instance, for sort of making drugs, you need that structure to be absolutely right. So this is a huge step forward and one that's happened much faster than anyone thought possible just two years ago. But it's not job done and finished and done and dusted yet. But it is going to lead to huge advances. Uh, you know, it's going to take time for those to come through, just as it did with the Human Genome Project. But in the long run, the benefits are going to be huge. And now 
it's time for a trip to the multiverse. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been chatting with uh, Laura Massini-Houghton. She's a cosmologist at the University of North Carolina, but she was born and raised in Albania when it was a communist dictatorship, and she's just written a book about her work. And in the book, she basically provides evidence, she claims, that we live in just one of a vast multiverse of universes. So that's cool. <laughs> but what's really nice about the book is that she weaves in all these stories about her childhood um, with her scientific journey as well. I mean, and, and that's really extraordinary. When she was five, um, her father was exiled for the first time. And this happened throughout her childhood. So she, you know, she had this crazy time as a child. And she got out of Albania um, when she won a Fulbright scholarship to the University of Maryland. And her big idea is that the universe in its earliest moments can be understood not just as this tiny particle, but as one that has a quantum wave function. And that's what physicists use to define the haze of possibilities you get in quantum physics. And she says, if you think about it like that, um, it gives rise to these, this multiverse, many diverse universes as well as our own one. And she made these predictions about what we might see today if her theory is correct and says they've been confirmed by observations of radiation left over from the Big Bang. And that's the cosmic microwave background. Laura, welcome to the show. So you had your breakthrough in a coffee shop in North Carolina. Tell us about that. I realized that since our universe was tiny, it was smaller than any quantum particle in the first moments of existence, then I can do quantum mechanics. I can study it with quantum mechanics. And furthermore, I can think of the universe not as a quantum particle, as an object, but I can actually think of the universe as a wave because of the wave-particle duality of uh, quantum mechanics. Yeah. One, once I made that connection, then the rest was just mathematical derivation. I mean, we, we solved that equation in this landscape of energies uh, for the wave function of the universe traveling through that landscape of energies, trying to find out where it would settle, in which energy, which valley of energy it would peak in that structure. And then... We, we found out the obvious answer that, uh, of course, it prefers the, the smallest energy possible. And, and uh, it, it took some more thinking and more work to realize that I'd missed another very crucial ingredient in, in that uh, picture, and that was quantum entanglement. And, and that uh, feature actually turned also crucial for later on for making predictions for uh, signatures, for, for traces of the multiverse in our own sky. Yeah, can you can you explain that a bit more? Because the theory of the decoherence of the wave function universe is, just sounds beautiful, even without understanding the maths of it. But, I mean, your idea moves further than just theory, doesn't it? Because you are able to make observations and, and actually test it using the fingerprints from the cosmic microwave background. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. So what, what allowed me to, to actually make those predictions with uh, Rich Holman and Tomo Takahashi as, as collaborators uh, was the fact that we have a coherent theory that starts before the Big Bang when our universe is just a wave in some landscape of energies. And, and uh, we have that coherent story where we can follow that wave through the Big Bang as it becomes a large universe, not quantum anymore. It, it becomes a classical universe when it grows. And to present day, we, we have a theory of cosmology where I can fast forward 
the, the first moment of existence in our universe to the present day. Once you do that, then you can trace those early moment entanglement between different branches that contributed some, some denting in, in our early sky, you can trace that forward to present day. And, and the whole effect is just a rescaled version. I mean, everything we see in the sky today is just a rescaled version of what happened at infancy. is like a birthmark that simply as, as, as a human, for example, grows, that birthmark will be there forever, but it, it just changes in size. So that, that's how we were able, we, we had the set of equations and we had the, the continuous story before, through inflation and after. So we, we could uh, trace that all the way through to present day. And uh, the predictions we made as, as a result of this early entanglement between different branches were first the existence of a uh, giant, area in the sky that we call the giant void, which was nearly empty. Another way to visualize what's happening here is think of all these quantum universes as as tiny quantum particles, and and you have a lot of them. They are all interacting with each other. when, when, When I have many quantum particles, they are interacting at least gravitationally. They are pulling on each other like all the objects do. So that interaction somehow modifies, dents, or scars our sky. It's very weak, of course, that that's a a minuscule interaction between all these branches, but it's sufficient to to modify our sky to some degree. Once we fast forward to present day, those dentures, those scars, then we made a series of uh, predictions, but one of those was that there should be a giant void in the sky of about 10 degrees. Now, did I help in in in, uh, in contributing to to the multiverse and the paradigm shifts? I, I I think definitely, and and even more than than answering and deriving the answer for the first time to to the question of the origin of uh, our universe. More than that, what what really helped in uh, my work is the fact that we were the first ones to show how you can actually test the multiverse. And then that yeah. you don't need to go beyond the horizon. You can just see it in our sky. Yeah, that's a really, really powerful thing that you've you've done with that. What would you like to people to take away from reading this book? Uh, science is beautiful and, and physics is beautiful. And uh, it doesn't matter how much hard work a field requires, which uh, I, I suspect is the same for most fields. It's, it's not unique to, to science. That, that moment, that very rare moment of discovery at the end is, is worth a lifetime of, of hard work. And uh, it really cannot be compared to, to any other type of accomplishment. That was Laura Messini-Houghton talking about her new book, Beyond the Big Bang, The Origin of Our Universe from the Multiverse. And I enjoyed that interview so much. I went back to talk to her again. I'm going to write that up for the magazine and we'll put a link there when that's out. Okay, so let's go from observations of the multiverse to, you know, slightly more local astronomy with the James <laughs> Webb Space Telescope. Oh, very good. Um, yeah, so the JWST, is, it's not even working for very long, but we're seeing an absolute slew of data coming back. Leia, let's start with the, the race to get to the oldest galaxy. Basically, what's happening is that we've gotten, as you said, this sort of fire hose of data 
And as people go through it, they're finding more and more distant galaxies. And people are going to keep doing that. So before we like dive all the way in, I should explain how we denote the distances to things in space, which yeah. is by a quantity called redshift, which occurs because of an effect similar to the Doppler effect. When things are moving away from you, their light is stretched and it becomes redder looking. And the farther away anything is from us in space, the faster it's moving away from us because of the expansion of the universe. So a higher redshift object is farther away than a lower redshift object mm. and also looks redder. So okay. it's been really notable, hasn't it, since we've started getting data coming back. We, we've had kind of the slew of results of older and older and older galaxies. What's the highest redshift that we've discovered so far? So there is one group that's reporting that they may have found a galaxy at a redshift of 20, which would mean that we're observing it as it was within 180 million years of the Big Bang. Is that, that's, that's unbelievable, isn't it? Because what, how old's the universe? 13.8 billion years old or something? Mm -hmm. So right, yeah. right the very early days of the universe. What do people think of that? I would say that most people are pretty wary of it. <laughs> It hasn't okay. been confirmed. In fact, most of these super distant galaxies haven't been confirmed. And that one in particular, that's earlier than we expect galaxies to have formed. Right. <laughs> um, but the highest redshift one that we have confirmed is at a redshift of about 13, which means that it formed within about 300 million years of the Big Bang. Okay. And um, let's talk a bit about exoplanets, because we mentioned on the podcast last week about how we can measure the atmosphere of exoplanets by looking at the, the you know, the spectral composition of, of the light coming through it. But now it turns out there are ways to measure the surface of planets too, aren't there? Yeah, so it's basically the same. Um, you're just looking at all the light that's coming from this planet, yeah. um, or any planet rather. And the really important part is separating out the light that's shining to us straight through the atmosphere and the light that's bouncing off the surface before it comes to us, which is super, super hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, extraordinarily hard. And some astronomers have been practicing with data from other telescopes, and they think they'll actually be able to do it with JWST. We're not sure yet, and it won't be every kind of exoplanet. It'll only be basically really shiny ones with thin atmospheres. Right. But it might be doable, which would be pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, to see the surface of an exoplanet would be incredible. And to, to as a mark of how hard it is, um, one astronomer we spoke to said, yeah, it's within the margins of feasibility to do this. So, yeah, <laughs> maybe. And the other thing that jumped out for me this week from JWST was um, the better image we've got of Arendelle, which is the most distant individual star ever seen, 28 billion light years away. Uh, it's just ludicrous, isn't it? And I just, ludicrous. I'll put in, <laughs> ludicrous. I'll just put <laughs> yeah. in a little plug. We've got so many stories from Leia and other writers. There's so much exciting stuff coming out of the JWST. So newscientist.com has loads at the moment. And that's it for this week. Thanks to our guests, Leia Crane, Michael LePage and Claire Wilson and Neil Gaiman. And thanks to you for listening. Before we go, um, we wanted to tell you, you can also listen to our podcast on YouTube. Just search for the New Scientist channel on YouTube and we're posting them on there. They're, they're in a dedicated playlist. And don't forget, of course, newscientist.com slash pod 50 to get that bargain deal of 50% off a subscription to New Scientist. 
Yep, newscientist.com slash pod50. Do go and check it out. And that's it. See you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.